Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next in our series of podcasts uh, with respect to Star Trek Discovery. Uh, the episode today is Choose Your Pain, aptly titled, perhaps. Um, this is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And I suppose we now get to choose our pain when it comes to uh, <laughs> new Star Trek. Uh, a lot happened, right? I overall, so I just finished watching it. I have like three pages of notes because it shouldn't surprise you. I'm a huge nerd. Um, I kind of am where I am after last week's episode. If you split the episode into its Klingon and non-Klingon parts, I really act, I like very much everything that happened on Discovery almost completely. There's I have I have some nitpicks and some clarifications and some caveats, but by and large. If it was on the ship, it was pretty good. Um, I tend to I tend to agree. Um, um, so let's we'll, we'll start. We'll uh, I'm happy to dig into the Klingon stuff because I think it is the the elephant in the room of this new series. We we said last week they need to speak English, and uh, there's there's that great line about when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers, because speaking English didn't help. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I had plenty of problems with the start, the, the Klingon scenes, but uh, I, one of them was not the fact that. I mean, she sounded like she you sounded know, Russian, Bor- which yeah, Bor- I was going to say Boris Badenov or something. Or what, what's the what's the female's name? In, oh, um, um, Natasha. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she sounded like Natasha from Natasha and Boris. Uh, but I was happy that I didn't have to read a bunch of subtitles. Um, and I just when the actor came in the first room and said, and like marble mouthed, choose your pain. I'm like, I needed the English subtitles. Like it was just <laughs> like, like on, on just a purely technical level, I am reiterating my complaint that the makeup is so dense that that could have been Judy Dench in there and we would not have known it. Like there's just, like just 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 the physical ability to form words, let alone do any of the like things of acting, seems beyond this makeup. Um, digging of course, into the, I agree. Yeah, and digging into the more plot stuff, we get thrown this curveball that apparently, and don't get me wrong, if I had Lieutenant Ensign, I don't think they gave him a rank. If I had Ash Tyler, I haven't written the names down super well, was in my custody i would probably do things to him too he's very handsome um but given that the whole klingon arc is some like insane ethnic purity thing this is a bit of a curveball that goes complete like uh, maybe it's the artifact of the serialization where we're not getting as much exploration as we should and this uh, it just um it's kind of like the opposite of Deep Space Nine's closing arc where they kind of burnt, like, like especially with, like, the Wynn-Ducat plot where they, like, almost burned out the story and they had to, like, blind Ducat for an episode just to put it on the back burner. This is the reverse problem where the serialization is actually stopping us from getting the necessary notes to care about the story. I'm like, so, okay, it's not... It, it, there is historical precedent for super racist people to have uh, less than consensual lovers... Um, of the group they are subjugating that is completely in keeping with learned experience on this point but it's thrown out way too casually yeah I mean so I guess you could see it two ways you could see it as uh, 
a good thing because it indicates that the Klingons aren't monolithic. I, I took it that she was from that house that was mentioned last time. Wait, I thought that the house, was the house. woman from that house. No, it, it's not Laurel. Oh, I thought it was uh, Laurel. No, oh, no. Okay. No, this, this was like, you know, Nurse Ratchet or something. Oh, well, and again, it's like, a, it's impossible to differentiate the Klingons. Yeah. In a way that that was not true. I can tell you which one's Lursa and which one's Bator. I can yeah. tell you which one's Lursa and which one's Bator looking at the human actresses out of makeup. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's well, just... so, I mean, it may have been a little confusing because it looked like they were going for a similar dress thing. Yeah. Because I took it that she was from the same house that Laurel yeah, is the, from. The, the this matriarch house liars, is... whatever they were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this catch-all uh, negative Klingon house. Um, my issue, so I didn't mind that Ash Tyler was getting nasty with you know the Klingon. I mean, these things happen, right? But um, my issues with the Klingon part of the story were three. <laughs> Number one, why is it even happening? Uh, you know what? What? I suppose the only point is to give us a listed cast member, you know, who's in the credits onto the ship. You know, this Ash Tyler guy played by Shazad Latif, who is in the credits, you know. Um, but <sighs> did it really tell us anything that we needed to know as far as the plot goes? Did it really advance the Klingons at all? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, beyond giving Saru a chance to command which had some interesting stuff but it was yes, yeah so let's keep that separate though yeah like the, as the, the Klingon story, story it's just it's still a soup of gr- mumbled pronouncements and i i just can't connect yeah it didn't do anything to make the klingon side of the plot better I and mean, they just sort of introduced a bunch of crap that who knows maybe it'll go somewhere interesting like i <sighs> I was like, okay, so apparently Lorca destroyed his prior ship to prevent them from being captured. Okay, so what? Like, this is just like a 45-second chunk of dialogue we're going to be given, and that's it? You know, and this guy Tyler seems to be like, eh, I guess I'm okay with it. And, like, okay. So, like, we learned that. And then, of course, there's Harcourt Fenton Mud, right? It, okay. It's, I'm about to say a sentence I've said before, and the fact that I've said it before has filled me with an existential dread because I remember the state in which I said this last time, so go with me. I am actually impressed by Rain Wilson's portrayal. It does not feel outside of the hairy mud we got in the original series. And I was ready to be annoyed to the ends of the earth that we were essentially getting like Dark Knight hairy mud. And I don't think we got that. Like, I no, think, I, I agree. Like, Ray I Wilson agree. actually portrayed Harry Mudd in in a line with the character we got in the original series. The problem well, but is... More, the, more than that, before you yeah. go to the problem, yeah. <laughs> more than that, uh, he made the character his own. It wasn't just, you know, a cheap imitation. He... Apparently, Rain Wilson is a pretty decent actor, and he can, you know, imbue a character with an inner life and, you know... Like, I'm not saying I loved it. I'm not saying I was charmed by it. But, you know, I respected it. Yeah. And my only problem is the last time I said that, that this actor was good enough to portray a character I thought unportrayable was discussing the Abrams movies. So it's put me in this place of like, one more time, you've hurdled 
what I would have said was flatly impossible, and I'm still worried about you doing what should be completely reasonable for me to expect in terms of a cohesive story. Um, I did like some of the implications of Harry's character, like when he talked, like we've talked about this before, how, you know, everyone talks about Starfleet Academy as this like pinnacle of Federation society, but it has to take, you know, less than, you know, 0.1 of 0.1% of Federation citizens. This can't be where, like, there have to be physicists who are not Starfleet scientists. There have to be, you know, security people who are not Star like, there have to be viable professions that are not Starfleet. Um, yeah, I, ver I very much enjoy the sort of class warfare angle that Harry Mudd was putting forward. It's obviously extremely current in today's American society, you know, where you have, you know, sort of low information voters railing against what they view as uh, mistreatment by elites or something. Um, so, yeah, I liked that. I found it strange. So it's like they kept talking about Stella, right? That was his wife course, from the robot episode. Right? Oh, I know. I know. Well, no, no, I, have, it, I haven't looked it up yet, but it's been forever since I watched this episode. That it, that is his actual wife, right? Yeah, the the wife who was really shrewish and who was like yelling at him, right? Like I think that's what what, what was going on. Ten years uh, is ten, ten years. Uh, I'm a divorce lawyer. Ten years is a long is a plenty of time for a relationship to go south. Well, and I mean, I guess she really uh, <laughs> let it go in those ten years too, because the way he put you know, describes her here is, you know, that just, uh, you know, uh, she's, she's everything that anybody could ever possibly want. Right. Um, let me just look it up just to make sure we're not, uh, so this is I mud in TOS and Stella. Yeah. His shrewish wife, Stella. I, I had that correct in my memory. So, I mean, so it's like, it seems clear that they're they're putting that there to please fans who have watched the TOS originals and you know are deep into it. It just in the same way that his character's presence raises questions, those mentions raise questions that they they only serve to irritate me by making it incongruous, you know. Uh like why is Harry Mudd here? Uh does this fit? Does this contradict? You know, I don't think it does. And yeah, it I don't doesn't think they contradict, did... but they haven't done anything to make it worthwhile that he was there, yeah. at least not yet. They haven't justified his presence in the same way that Sark's presence is completely unjustifiable so far. Yeah, and in, I got to say, other than Sarah, I was thinking about this and you meant like with the Stella reference, it's a it's a it's a soft impact piece of fan service like. Yeah, I didn't mind it yeah, for uh, that reason. And like, there's a couple of others in here, like uh, referencing the Memphis system for as in Klingon territory. That's out of TNG. So little stuff like that works. They, well, and they mentioned Benzar, yeah, the home planet. They've done like Benzars. a. I would say they're at about a two to one ratio of like pleasing organic fan service and frustratingly bizarre fan service. Like, uh, what was the? Oh, I loved the list of Starfleet captains. Yeah, that, that was know, good because uh, what was it? It was would, Archer. Robert April, April, which is, you know, that's a that's a deep reference. That's a deep cut. Um, Pike, Giorgio. Well, I mean, the Pike reference. <laughs> it's one of it's like the list was good, and then I saw Pike, and, it, and it's just like it it drew me out, and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> this is either happening 
concurrently with the cage, you know, or not the cage, but the menagerie. No, the cage. It's co- either happening concurrently with the cage or after the cage. You know, and I'm just like, oh, you know, it's like you had me going there, but then you put Pike there, and it's like now you're just reminding me of all the problems you've created by setting yourself here. Um, so it, it was good and bad fan service. That was. I didn't mind Pike's presence per se. We know where they are. It's not like that. In for like, I, I don't lump. I don't blame the Pike reference for something. Like I, I would view it as co-equivalent with the April reference. It's a previous captain of the Constitution class Enterprise. We are where we are. It's it's not that entry's fault. Um, back back oh, to the Klingon and story. Decker. That was a like okay. Yeah, that's a yeah. deep cut. Sure. Um, back to the Klingon story though. Uh, I found the resolution to be sort of hackneyed, uh, you know, like the notion that these two guys who are like either extremely photosensitive or just like starved, you know, could take on not only the two guys in the jail cell, but then, you know, trek foo their way out of this Klingon vessel. I did note that that was some serious trek foo. I mean, these are essentially creatures with exoskeletons. You should not be able to punch them. <laughs> well, and they even did the the, the two-fisted move that uh, I posted an article about recently um, on Facebook. You know, this, like, move that <laughs> human martial artists today say is the most ridiculous and ill-advised possible uh a punching technique uh to to ball your fists together and try to you know whack someone up and down um yeah so it, the whole thing just ended up feeling pointless you know like i didn't know why harry mudd was there except to deliver an interesting bit of dialogue i don't care yet about ash tyler you know, which apparently is the overall plot reason for us to be there. And I, I didn't really get much out of this tidbit of history for Captain Lorca. It's like, it, is that going to go somewhere? Or is it just like a little piece of character info? So at, at the end of the day, it's like you spent 20 minutes here out of 40. And it, it just it just doesn't hit for me. It's like I, I don't. I don't feel the importance of it. And it just detracts from what you have said and what I tend to agree with is the best part of the story, which is the the conflict between Saru and Burnham, uh, the ethical dilemma with the, you know, tardigrade creature uh, and the way that they resolved it, right? Like all that stuff, I was totally into it, but I could not help but feel, and I wrote this down in my notes, Serialized storytelling is chopping things into bite-sized bits that are less satisfying than a longer meditation would be. You know, like, do you agree with that, Kevin? Oh, overall, like, yeah. I, I, I think the problem, yeah, like none of this stuff is getting. It's not the. Fo- it's not like the crystalline entity where this episode's focus was. We are going to discuss the ethics of creatures that appear dangerous but have a right to exist. Like, um, well, it's and they talked about sentience for like. Four seconds. Yeah. This character believes that the tardigrade is sentient. And that's the end of that story. You know, it's like, no, that's an extremely interesting thing, right? And so, like, I liked how it was resolved. I liked that, you know, that there were different sides, right? I really liked Saru's sort of trying to thread the needle. It's like, right, when he said, I'm not doing this because I enjoy it. 
Like, that was a great line, because it indicates, like, he's clearly the, I guess, utilitarian in the group. Like, he looks at the actions for their consequences and is making some kind of greater yes. good argument, and that even if what he's doing... And, and this is what I loved about his character was when he says, if this, like, if what we're doing is unethical, I will bear the consequences of that after we save the captain. Yeah. I like, like, because it... A cheaper drama, so credit where it's due, a cheaper drama would have painted his disregard as one-dimensional. It's just there's the people who care and the people who don't care. Saru also cares. He has just ranked his priorities incrementally differently. Like, But now, Kevin, let yeah. me ask you, how much of that is us doing the work off-screen in our heads and how much is being done on-screen you know, on stage with the dialogue that's being given. I, you and I, you and I are trained by season after season of boardroom drama, Star Trek. You know, to be able to suss out these arguments. I contend that they did not do enough on screen. They did not present uh, Burnham's side with the sort of Picard type speech. Right? It's like it is a life. It it is intrinsically valuable. And it must not be sacrificed even if a 1,000 people are at risk, even if 10,000 people are at risk, right? It's like you need a couple minutes of dialogue to really earn that th that feeling. I think there was so enough in the scene. Like, Saru explicitly presented both his practical position and its philosophical underpinning. He might not have named the philosophy he was following, um, but it was there. Well, I would have been completely thrilled had he said you know john stewart mill tells us yeah. <laughs> and then burnham said no but Kant would say that. it's like yes yes they didn't do what i would want them to do but what i'm saying is they didn't do what prior iterations of star trek yeah I, and that being said i really what it comes down to is i is the klingon side of the story is just pushing is just crowding out time for this other story that's way more interesting like i liked all every I want the show to be about Sorrow and Burnham. I want them to have like a morning talk show where they drink coffee and discuss the issues of the day because they have the actors have really good chemistry, which is an accomplishment given that they are like a foot and a half different in height. Like, yeah. like they they fill a scene together really, really well. And I like when he calls her on the precise nature of her bullshit because it is a little bit. It is like, you know. Your commanding officer did technically, you've presented your concerns, your commanding officer decided not to follow them. What got you into trouble before and is going to keep getting you into troubles when you substitute your judgment for your superior officer in a hierarchical chain of command? Yeah. But it also makes sense. It is an ethical thing to do. And Starfleet officers from Kirk on down the line have all broken the rules, usually with no consequences when some finer point of ethics was on the line so all of that feels like star trek watching characters do what is right feels like star trek so all that is there yes. um i agree i would have liked a little more time like okay so the tardigrade ascensioned you could show me that you could show the tardigrade responding to stimuli in a way that indicates awareness of environment and response to stimuli beyond the instinctual like you could do that like without the torture scenes you have the 20 minute like they in like 5 minutes of um uh silicon avatar they gave us hints at least you know a basis to believe the crystalline entity was not just alive but sentient it was responding to the messages in a way that indicated more than mere mimicry. It was like that, like th those two lines of dialogue. 
um, indicated that there was a basis to believe the creature was sentient. So that you can do that in a, in a brief amount of time. And I, I agree. I would have liked to have seen that. That being said, I enjoyed just about everything we saw. Um, with some qualification, I enjoyed the, the scene of them kind of expounding on the nature of the spore drive. Like, is it a little bit bullshitty? Sure. Uh, yeah. But it's an explanation. <laughs> like, I, Well, so now are you talking about the painfully inorganic exposition scene in oh, which yeah. the three well, characters were like summarizing things should, for us. Right. And uh, discussing something all three of them know intimately. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it well, was. And then the swearing, is that really necessary? I noted that too. I, I literally wrote swearing. Um, I understand they are trying to take advantage of the fact that they do not have to conform to standard network broad work broadcast standards. And... I want to show Star Trek to my children, you know, yeah, I want to we... show Star Trek to my children. No. I want to show Superman to my children. I want to show these properties to my children because the ideas in them are powerful enough to be interesting to an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, even a six-year-old. But and, and now, talk... I, now I can't show it to my kid. Right, and we've talked about this before. We came to Star Trek as children. It had a profound it's, it's and positive pointless. impact on our lives. It's uh, pointless. It does not serve the story. It does not... It, it only harms things. Yeah, I, and it was... It, I'll say, I'm not a prude by any stretch of the imagination. No, nor um, am I. But it was, it was gratuitous. It wasn't like... Like, Deep Space Nine went to a dark place. Chain of Command went to a dark place, which did kind of fuck up 10-year-old Kevin for a little while. Um, but they served... Like, if... I'll say this. I, I For Star Trek, for, for anything that appeal... That is supposed to or has appealed to a larger age group, I'm... F I can live with you pushing the envelope. I can live with the idea that this might be for your, you know, preteen teen child. But you have to you have to then do the work to justify the 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 the, the more mature stuff. It can't just be there. Like they said, fuck because they can say fuck. And then they said it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like they said it twice for no fucking reason, right? It, like it did not serve the story. Torturing Picard served the story. Yeah. You know, murdering people, you know, like like murdering uh, with the Veron T disruptor served the story, right? It's like those things served the story. But it, this does not serve the story. No. This is like a, th a throwaway line of dialogue that just takes it out of the realm of something that you can show kids of a certain age, right? And that, that irritates me because it's it's doing it for its own sake. It's not doing it for the story's no, sake. No, I, I agree. Um, beyond that, it, beyond the sort of like – here's the thing. Okay. You made a good point about the kind of serialization. Every episode after the two-part opener, we have gotten some scene of Saru calling Burnham on some behavior that is similar enough to what got her court-martialed to concern him. In a traditional, in a, tr a traditional non-serialized story, that would be an episode. It would just be this episode is watching these two characters have conflict, explore conflict, resolve conflict. And then you would dramatize it in some way yeah, so, that was central to the plot. Yeah, I just, um, I enjoyed their scenes so much together that I'm the least bothered by that. But at some point, like like the telescope thing, like it, the, the telescope scene actually kind of typified something where because everything is serialized, everything has to happen either not at all or very quickly. And it's like, this was like the last gift of like your treasured mentor. I, it almost felt like she would like, 
I don't. It, she wasn't giving it away casually, but she was giving it away a little quickly. Well, and just to like try to win or something. Um, like I almost hate to say it because it seems like I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. But if she said, "I would like to," you know, set this up in a in like a like the conference room if they have a conference room. Like if she had said, "I want you to share this object with me." Maybe that would have felt more genuine. Like I would, I want you to have access to this thing that also matters to me because of a cap. They didn't cap- show her using it, right? They didn't show her like really caring about it, and so like giving yeah, it, it up. It all just do- happened very quickly, and that was that seems to be an artifact of the serialization. I agree. Yeah, everything seems to be happening very quickly. They're just trying to cram too much in to you know all these episodes. Like, well, now we got to do Klingon stuff. Well, now we got to do Lorca stuff. Well, now we got to. It's like. Um, yeah, slow the, the world, fuck down. I, in the positive calm for the world building, I did note I did like that scene at the start where they like rein him in, like with ta- yes. discussion of tactics and morale and things. Like, Definitely. okay, this feels like a real place. Like, just because you have a super weapon doesn't mean you can use it indefinitely. There are consequences. Well, and what I really liked about that scene was when Lorca pushes back. He says, "You've given me wide latitude," and that fits with this like captain in TOS theme, right? Like the the captain has nearly unlimited power in the field, you know, and you just have to you have to accept that, you know, that's just part of the way Starfleet is at this time, you know, in its in its history. And some captains turn out to be good and some captains turn out to be bad. And that plays into the the whole, you know, Harry Mudd dialogue theme, too. Right. You know, he's like, do you ever look down from your starships to see the little people? You know, it's like. You have these captains who are capable of deciding the fates of planets, deciding the fates of millions. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely very much enjoyed the look at Starfleet as an organization, you know, Lorca chafing against their, you know, sort of restrictions, them trying to rein him in, but him, yeah, that was all uh, good stuff. I've really come to like the Admiral. She she definitely has that kind of... Nechev quality. I'm I'm enjoying it. Um, did you get the impression that they were supposed to have fucked at some point? I did. Or yeah. That they at least were friends of some stripe. Um, I did like her asking about Burnham because it, it. I always enjoy like even if you're going to do the slightly unrealistic thing, if you hang the lampshade on it to say we acknowledge it's unrealistic or we're going to query its credibility, like she says. The one mutineer in Starfleet now has a job on your ship. That is a PR problem, and PR matters. And like the captain brushes her off, but it tells me the writers understand those questions, and and it makes it more. Now you can paint it more in keeping with Lorca's "I am the king and my word is law," as opposed to the writers are lazy. Even if the writers were in fact lazy, no, I agree with that. Like it helps. I also want to say this because we 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 have criticized so. So, so many dream sequences over the course of five series and, uh, what, 14 movies? That was a good dream sequence. It was short. I like the tour of the ship. The effect, like, okay, so you see Burnham at the console. You see Burnham in the room. It's obviously a dream. She screams in pain. The other one screams in pain. The end. So it was short. The imagery was evocative. And I got to see the inside of the ship. So good dream sequence, guys. And the fish, it wasn't even quite fisheye. It was just like blurry at the edges. Yeah. Most effective dream sequence effect ever. 
because the, the fisheye is terrible, the white space is terrible. I'm not saying you should do dream sequences a lot because you definitely shouldn't. But if you must, if it is on your spirit to do a dream sequence, that was a good one. So I I agree. Technically, uh, <laughs> I liked I liked seeing all the areas of the ship. Definitely made it feel more like a real place. Um, I mean, the dream was a little on the nose, don't you think? It's like. How how many dreams are that straightforward? <laughs> it's it's like I'm feeling guilty about jabbing this creature with two things in the side. Therefore, I'm going to dream about myself being jabbed with those two things in the side. Yeah, <laughs> but. Generally, I agree. It was okay, also short so, to the extent yeah. it was a narrative problem. Like the dream sequence was supposed to display her guilt. It did yeah. that in about 45 seconds. And then they talked about it. I was so happy. Like Tilly hasn't exactly grown on me. I find her still a little like on the nose for this like archetypal nerd verging on autistic that I find to be lazy stereotyping about intelligent people. Um, but when she goes to the mess hall and sees her sitting there and says, you seem out of it. And she says, you know what? I am out of it. I am worried about this thing. Oh, well, then you should work on that thing. Like, okay, it was a short conversation, but it's it's good. It's that, That's what I would love them to do more of that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know what? Speaking of that particular scene, uh, I they showed it in the dream too, this, uh, this mess hall. I really like the mess hall because it – it's structurally similar to the mess hall from TOS in a way that only someone who's watched every episode of TOS would, would really <laughs> yeah, pick up yeah, on. Yeah. And that there's a lot of touches like that in the ship's design. That's funny. That, I got a sense of the, of the uh, mess hall, of the dining hall from uh, Star Trek six. Cause it hmm. seems to follow the leading curve. It's, it seems to be curved the way the, yeah, yeah the dining room and on the, on the refit was, uh, no, but, yeah, but the, I, the way they've got like the, whatever food dispensers, you know, on one end and then the, the tables and it's just the same with the captain's chair. The captain's chair seems to intentionally echo the captain's chair in TOS. So yeah, the bridge has actually grown on me. I wouldn't go that far, but the captain's chair has grown on um, me. I liked the, I liked the consoles, uh, absent their crew members. Um, uh, I liked they looked cool in a way that didn't bother me. Like I like those better than anything of like a clear screen that you have to look through. This well, is just a blue highlighted touch screen, which seems they have those. Fine. You know, they I know. have those. That's the problem. Yeah, every time they film through the you know lucite screen at the character, I'm just like, this is horrible. This is a horrible design choice. Um, so. Uh, was there any other? When it, big- when it, well, no. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously one big thing we have to talk about, uh, or is it big? I don't know. Um, you know the uh, so the way that the tardigrade story was resolved was that Stamets uh, injects himself with you know magic serum X and then can fulfill the role. I I presume he's going to keep doing it, you know, for the rest of the series or something, um, or for however long this mushroom drive story lasts it it's still facially stupid anyway um i will say if given that we apparently need to genetically engineer a human to run it that's as plausible an explanation as any for why this didn't catch on so I, they've well, seated, so, they've already seeded the ground for why this won't be popularized so see, hey guys. I, th- I thought initially that th- the problem was going to be that this was the last of its species or something, this tardigrade, you know, it's like, or an endangered species. And so it would be grossly immoral to, 
you know, use this. But then they completely obviated that by number one, setting it free, but number two, essentially being able to replicate, you know, its its function. Um, you know, so now it's just a question of whether people will keep doing this or whether they can simulate the human input. Um, you know, I li- I liked the the general way they approached Stamets's sort of duplicity. You know, like he he had a very careful response over the oh the yeah, com- yeah we're ready to jump. I'm like oh okay um yeah Ensign Foreshadow is here. He's predicting yeah. things. Like it's just like uh, it was obvious the way from when when the answer was anything other than yes, you know they've done something. I would my only question was was it going to be Stamets or Burnham down there? That's like, yeah. Th- I. I literally turned to Kelly and I said, so do you think it's going to be Stamets or Burnham? Um, I was actually betting on Burnham, but... Yeah, I thought it was going to be Burnham too. Uh, So, and then of course, the resolution of that sort of character uh, moment was the pairing up of uh, Dr. Hugh Culber, who is not the CMO. CMO? I caught that too. I'm like... Uh, it was something I, uh, before we dive into the gay, and my notes literally just have the word gay in all caps with three exclamation points, so I'm ready to talk about this. Um, but before we get to that, I do want to say between that and the fact that we've gotten very little follow-up thus far with the uh, helmsman from the Shenzhou who is now on Discovery and the other, like, now With the bizarre bionic head now? Or- uh, yeah, and then the other officer, who I want to know more about, if only because I'm in love with her hairstyle. Like, I am just fascinated. I am compelled visually. I want to know more about this person. And she got a name today. Um, yeah. But uh, which I, I which I can't pronounce yeah, for you. But. That's 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 not that's that's not my, that's not her problem. Um, I would say I they clearly seem to be digging into the idea that this is not an ensemble show in the classic mold of all of the other Star Trek series. Like they are intentionally not following up so far on bridge officers who are there every time we're on the bridge. It's not like there's a rotating staff of helmsmen and we're just supposed to not care about them. Like, we apparently haven't met this ship's chief medical officer. Um, Well, which was problematic as far as the plot goes because Saru is, like, ordering Dr. Culber to revive the creature. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. It's like, well, okay, I'll just have the actual fucking doctor do it instead of you, the subordinate doctor who's talking to me for some reason. Like it, it didn't, what is the point of not making him him the the CMO? Yeah. That is, that is, yeah. The only thing I can think is that they're not there. Yeah. Just, uh, and and, it's like, they're waiting to introduce another actor or something like, what is the point? Yeah. it, It is kind of odd. I mean, if only because part, and we've talked about this before, both here at the podcast and just in real life. Like, I think, I remember, I think I texted you like two weeks ago. Does Discovery have a conference room? Because we haven't seen it. And that's a pretty standard piece of a Star Trek set. They go to a room and they all talk about stuff for a while. And I know that some people find that tedious, but we find it fascinating. So it does seem, and, and so it's like, even if we went to that conference room, apparently none, few of the people we've met so far would actually be in that meeting. So I, I guess if you, if this is supposed to be like lower decks the show, in which the sort of narrative focus is not the captain and the narrative Gravity Well is not the senior staff. That that's interesting. It's a twist. Again, I feel like they're kind of going halfway on that though, because obviously Lorca had 
a big chunk of this yeah. episode. And and they keep bringing they they keep filming the same people in these roles, so it's like they're holding them in reserve for when they want to use them narratively. Yeah. Oh, though apparently hunky guy in the back is the calm guy. So yeah. I'm one step closer to finding out who my my new uh, Star Trek boyfriend is. Yeah. Um, so, so speaking of Star Trek jump, boyfriends, jumping on that point, yeah, it's a good segue. <laughs> That's that was that was some top notch segueing, if I do say so myself. Um, it does put the so the reveal that they are a, an item uh, does put a spin on the earlier scene when he's fixing his nose because I thought that little bit of like oh well maybe one day you'll have a feeling was like the you know the little bit of bile for an ex partner and it was actually just like you know uh uh you know Catherine Hepburn Spencer Tracy banter apparently which works for yeah. me I can classify it in that light I will say. This is one of those reveals that actually works when you go back to watch the earlier stuff. Like, if your partner were acting with what appeared to be casual disregard for their safety, you would be deeply annoyed both on their behalf and on your behalf. Like, you would feel that that was an issue in your relationship. So his pissed-offness actually feels organically explained by the reveal that they're a couple. I also want to credit, I liked the low-key nature and intimacy of that scene, like brushing their teeth. They, they didn't feel they had to go for a giant kiss or something. And, and I wouldn't have minded a kiss. I, I mean, I've I've watched Kirk Mack on enough green women. I am owed hot dudes making out. I just feel that is balance in the universe. Well, but it it doesn't it, make sense with the emotional Right, it would not have made scene. sense in that scene. The two of them brushing their teeth together in their match in their adorable matching Starfleet jammies. <laughs> Was cute, like, and there was there was physical contact, there was intimacy. Like he puts his hand yeah. on his on his shoulder and his, touches his arm. Like there that there was credible intimacy, which I appreciated. I was slightly annoyed by the like they, they practically could have thrown a question mark on the screen when they had him staring at the mirror for that extra second with a musical cue. It's like, oh, did the spores affect him? Yes, of course they did. Um, but that's well, that. I I got the impression. So, like, he walked away and the mirror image was still there, which leads me to believe that that's some kind of intro into the supposed mirror episodes we're going to get of Discovery, which... I didn't even... You know, I was fiercely writing notes about the adorable Starfleet matching jammies. I didn't even notice that the that the sequence... It was out of sync. I'm going to have to go back and watch that now. I feel like an idiot. Um, yeah. But as no, far as... It, it was like a, a residual image in the mirror after Stamets walked out of the bathroom. Uh, so I, I get the feeling that somehow this, the entree into the mirror universe is going to be the fungus drive, you know, like the, the threads, tendrils permeating the universe, which is still <laughs> almost the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Eh, I'm fine with it. It's, it's no dumber than these magic crystals warp space into a bubble. It's a, it's a technobabble explanation, and at least they're – I'm thrilled. No, Kevin, come on. It's, it's, it's dumber than warping space into a bubble because there are real physics, the Alcubierre, you know, like theoretical drive that validates that notion, you know, creating a bubble. Like the whole subspace is bullshit. Okay, yes, I will grant you that. Uh, but – it's not as bullshit yeah, as well, like, like there is some to... kind of organism, literal organism, that has permeated every corner of the universe. That's just fucking stupid. Okay, I'm saying if you were tasked with writing a technical explanation for how the Iconian gateways worked, 
no matter what you came up with, it was going to sound vaguely ridiculous. No, it wouldn't. Kevin, I could do it for you in four seconds. The Iconian gateways work by using a large enough power source to create a warp in space-time so that there is an artificial wormhole you know, connecting one point. You know, Because of the extreme curvature created by this energy use, the extreme curvature in space, where you can then you know, get yourself over there. Now, that explanation is solid. That fits with currently known physics, okay? But I will admit that the explanation creates other problems, which is if this civilization has that much power, you know, like power sources with that much energy. Why would they need to go somewhere instantaneously anyway? I'm saying, like, it, it, I am, I am tickled that they took a stab at a fleshed out explanation. (laughs) Pun not intended. There was Um, just no reason for it to be fungus. There was no reason for it. Yeah. It's all, it's all. You could have had, you could have had the, you know, it's, possibly sentient being. It's all magic. Manipulating some physical force. I'm saying it's instead. all magic. I, this is the, this is the least troublesome part of discovery for me by a mile. <laughs> mm. uh, so, uh, to, so to get back to the boys, I I do look forward to them kissing. They're both very attractive, and I have had a crush on Anthony Rapp since like Adventures in Babysitting. So I am all there to watch him make out with a dude real good. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Wilson Cruz's performance here. You know, he was, uh, you know, the gay best friend in My So-Called Life, which he had emotional depth in that role. But here he has sort of a commanding presence, too, which is impressive. And yet you can still see, you know, the gay, frankly, <laughs> like, you know, in various line readings and, and you know, inflections and stuff. Uh, and so it's. It's really cool. I don't know if you agree with me or not. No, or if you I, find, I like find, both. If you find this comment offensive, but it's really cool that you have a clearly gay character also be like super competent. Oh and, yeah, they're they're not like even sta- even statements kind of reads as like prissy uptight Victorian gay who used to who in the 18th century would have written novels. Um, I, I appreciate uh, their their um what's the word? How am I? What's their swishiness, for lack of a better word, is not stereotypical or comical. It is just a genuine way many gay men present. Um, yeah. And I enjoy that they did. Like, it would have been more annoying had they, like, butched them up to make them, yeah. like, they're just yeah. like everyone else. Like, oh, we're pretty swishy sometimes. Suddenly Riker's kissing dudes for some reason. Right. Yeah. Like, like, I'm, like they're, they pitched their, what in retrospect, is their obvious homosexuality at a quite organic level. And I'm guessing that was largely the actors, because I'm I, I know Anthony Rapp is super duper gay. I don't know about Wilson Cruz, but pretty authentic if he's not. Oh, um, he's if he is not gay, I you know, like up is down, left is right, you know, the sp- sky is the spores inhabit the subspace realm throughout the universe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um no. So and more than that, I I have said this for ages. I always enjoy any romantic relationship in Star Trek that feels lived in, that is not just for the episode, is not just for the drama. Um, you know, Troy and Riker had it. I think Crusher and Picard would have had it if we ever let them. Uh, Cisco and Cassidy definitely had it. Tom Bellana had it. Just that, like, there's a there's a day to day quality of a relationship, regardless of its you know gender combinations. Yeah, um, that Kira and Odo did not have did it. not um, Ch- Chakotay and Seven did not. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, so yeah, I enjoy seeing like again like they picked like a super mundane 
activity of them both brushing their teeth together, which is like, and in their door, I, I'm going to buy those pajamas. I want them so bad. Um, it did stick out to me, brushing teeth. Uh, you know, it, it's a very weird thing to see in Star Trek. You know, well, it, it's such it's, a, right, because we otherwise never see a bathroom. Like, yeah, aren't it's nanites, one of the, it's, yeah, aren't nanites just cleaning your teeth? Like, well, or, why aren't they using some sort of ray or something? Well, like, I assume have... it was an electric toothbrush because they weren't scrubbing. It was more just like holding the toothbrush at this weird angle in their mouth. So I assume something mechanical was going on. My question... There was also no obvious color coding between the two toothbrushes. So it's like, how do they know whose is whose? I don't know. My question is, the room from the bathroom looked like, like Burnham and Tilly's room. So I'm like, are they, are they sleeping in separate bunks? Are they not supposed to be a co- like it, it? Like Starfleet is. Yeah, I don't know if they're open yet. That's my yeah. question. Starfleet has some vague rules about couples working together. Um, some of them make sense. Some of them do not. Um, so I'm curious uh, what that is like. Are they, they just happen to be roommates and then you know started a relationship, or they're in a relationship and got quarters together? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Because this does not seem like the starship. This is not the Enterprise. This is not the Galaxy class starship where you know people bring their families. So, you know, and and obviously that's a source for drama because even in the modern military where romantic relationships, even between co-equals, let alone subordinates and commanders, are discouraged, obviously they happen. Um, so there's there's a source for drama obviously it'd be pretty easy to split either of their loyalties by placing one of them in danger it was a fascinating episode in deep space nine and should have been jadzia's death but that's a little off topic um so yeah i for star trek's first official not um stupid gay pairing um i'm fine with it i mean uh I suppose I thought, I thought it was handled as well as it could be. Yeah, no, it felt very organic. I look forward to seeing them have relationship conflicts in the context of the show. And the more time we spend watching these two attractive men throw sarcasm at each other, the less time we'll spend with the Klingons. So, yeah, if you gave me this episode and then just cut to 20 minutes of them having an argument about going to Ikea this weekend, this would be a whole notch higher episode for me. I, You know, I haven't been... Uh checking a lot of the, you know, sort of commentary uh, on Facebook or on the Gawker sites or anything like that, just to see what the, the general response is. But I, I'm, I'm kind of relishing the thought that there are just like somehow right-wing shit brain, you know, Star Trek fans who are just apoplectic. You know, first you made the lead character a black female. Now you're going to make the only romantic relationship in this show be, you know, <laughs> two gay guys, one of whom is Hispanic. And it's like, uh, this isn't my Star Trek anymore. Concern it. Well, there are people who take the fisticuffs part of TOS at face value. I mean, Marco Rubio being one of them, apparently. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. I could easily see it. I- I've read a little bit. Um, like, I read the AV Club just generally. And I would say most of it, for once, we seem to be in lockstep with the, at least the uh, cri- critical uh, side of Metacritic, um, where it's like, there's good bones here, there's good acting, there's good character work. The story is a little uneven at this point. So I, I don't, yeah, I think we're actually kind of largely in sync with what everyone thinks, which is an unusual feeling for me. Um, okay. 
Well, maybe we should talk about uh, acting and production values. Uh, you know, I can't say that any particular acting portion. I, I guess uh, Saru was the standout yeah. because I'll, his character got a lot of. Yeah, one thing um, before we dive back in. Have you heard it being pronounced Suru a couple of different places this episode, like by the computer and like... One I've heard Saru and Saru. I heard Suru, like Sulu, but transposing the L for an R when the computer <laughs> said it. So it's like production meeting, guys. You got to pick one. Yeah. Yeah. Got to pick one. No, I agree with that. Um, so I, I thought his was the standout performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was great. Because um, it, it had real sort of layers and, you know... Like whether I, whether or not the script did it justice, the actor did it justice. Yeah, I, I liked I liked his like hyper analytical attempt to um, predict what his what would make him a good or a bad captain. Like that almost feels like something Data would do. Like yeah. uh, for clearly being like this show's Spock Data slightly outsider stand in, he's doing a really good job, and I I love his chemistry with uh, with uh, Sonequa Martin Green. I think they for what must be a very weird acting experience for like the who thing and the height difference and the makeup, they cut through it so quickly. Like I really buy these are people who work together, who like and respect each other to a point, but have a legitimate and somewhat unsolvable beef. Oh, speaking of writing, I did like his uh, explanation of his issue, you know, like at the end of the day, what it really boils down to is that, she she deprived him of this experience that he wanted you know yeah like that's that's really interesting character work yeah and it's something i hadn't thought about which is always nice when the show can kind of surprise you like it it, it wasn't just his like abstract mathematical assessment of her duty this had a personal impact on him that yeah. is coloring his analysis uh, I, I like his character's irritability like i like it he you know he's prickly Right, he, he's he's, almost, he, he's got idiosyncrasies. Yeah, he's got those like uh, notes of Odo, which are which you know, given the amount of makeup, is not off the wall. But I do like like he doesn't quite he he never says harumph, thankfully. But I I, I agree. I like that he's a little he's <laughs> he's clearly used to being a very smart person in a room of people not listening to him, and I appreciate that performance. Like, yeah, I re and uh. The hoof thing could, and the, I will say the threat ganglia got, and this is more of a production note, but like that he knew it was her behind him on the bridge. Like the threat ganglia are verging onto one of those like magical qualities that serve the plot rather than are an organic thing that, you know, exists in the show. Tiny thing. Um, but I, he does such a good job. Like I can't imagine trying to act on hooves. He's apparently done it a thousand times now because that's that was his career before this was being the scary hoofed person in Guillermo del Toro movies. Um, so I guess if you got a niche, you work it. But I really, he really inhabits the physicality of his character like he's a real person. And for the amount of physical appliances that he's wearing, um, that's that's no small accomplishment. Kevin, I'm I'm looking at the uh, I agree with you. I'm I'm looking at the memory alpha page, and it it may be that. Wait a minute. I'm trying to figure out if Laurel is this jailer person, and the memory alpha page seems to be indicating that. Which 
See, makes that, that no sense. Makes no sense well, at all. The the fact that we can't tell indicates how big right. a problem. Also, aren't they like on? Like, I guess there's something that's happened in the intervening few months, but like they were on the Shenzhou by themselves, going to do completely, something. completely uh, stranded. Yeah. So with no possible way of getting out. Yeah. So there's. I am. I am worried. I mean, I'm worried. Um. So. Rain Wilson, you did a good a job as I could have imagined you doing with the Harry Mudd character. I agree with what you said. He he embodied the original character while making it his own, and it didn't veer into what I thought it would be, which would be the Dark Knight Rises version of Harry Mudd for this new darker Star Trek universe. It yeah. actually, like costuming choices and beard waxing choices aside, is not an impossible line between this Harry Mudd and the Harry Mud we see in TOS, like ten years of living on the edge like this, might make you more like gleefully, you know, unconcerned about ethics as opposed to like gravely unconcerned about them. I could see it. So good on you. I still don't know why they did it, but you did what they asked you to do, like gangbusters. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, production values. Um... You know, it was uh, as consistently good as it's been as far as effects go. The sort of dragonfly uh, fighter ships kind of seem stupid. Uh, it's like you really want a ship made of windows. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. Because gonna... there's a, there's this tendency, and the, the, what they reminded me of was a similar fighter vessel from Stargate, of all things. Because I was talking about that with a friend, so that was on my mind. It's like you're not going to design spaceships to look like airships i guess would be my critique well and speaking of klingon vessels the d7 uh come on guys the d7 klingon vessel they keep filming or not filming but portraying these vessels at such tight angles that you can't understand what the shape of them is and that's really annoying to me yeah i agree in addition to the fact that they're calling it something that has clearly already been portrayed, you know, in uh, like I would have been thrilled if a D7 Klingon vessel just appeared, you know, and it looked the way it looks uh, at, you know, whatever. Um, so as its own thing, it fails because I can't tell what it's supposed to look like. And like, I, I'm trying to figure if there, and it, this is part of my general concern. Like by the time DS9 started doing serialized storytelling, they had done the homework. They had done the baseline work that I had the reference points already. So maybe part of my problem is I'm tired of having to have the production staff at Comic-Con tell me, don't worry, it will all work out. Like, shouldn't I just know that? Shouldn't it just be working out? And then my other thought is the only thing I can think they're doing, and this relates back to that comment because it annoys me if that's what they are doing, is if they're trying to enhance the Klingon's otherness by the use by the use of so much subtitles, by the hyper-stylized thing, by the tight angles on the ships, like if they're trying to maintain the sense of other until some point at which we start to see them more completely and we maybe start empathizing with it. Like, but even that feels like, no, I don't think, like, I don't trust them enough to think that's what they're doing. And I think it would be kind of boring if it were. You can just make them, like, the Cardassians from the jump 
were a nuanced, interesting, three-dimensional people. Because we were told there was a war. Then you have a Cardassian show up who says, I actually totally hated that war. But if we don't do this right, we're going to go back to war. And the person who was precipitating the war, a member of the otherwise ostensibly peaceful Federation. So you had you had two people at the start of the episode who have like society level traits and the drama reflected around two people from those peoples that didn't share them. And yeah. so, like, from the word go, I could accept the idea that the Cardassians were a varied, complex, emotionally complete people. Like, that scene in 10 forward, right away, like, it, you had O'Brien's regret about violence and the Cardassians regretted that it happened and all of this, all of the state, like, there was nuance already there. So if they are saving nuance, I don't know why. And it makes me worried that there's no nuance there. So. I think that is a well explicated uh concern um you know your concerns are well founded and anyone who wasn't concerned before i think should be more concerned now <laughs> because i agree it it can be done and it can be done economically you know yeah. quickly one conversation one conversation there are some men who've had who uh, seek war. I know you and I have had our fill. Like, oh my god, great. Oh my, w w The entire episode is spent at the brink of war that could be precipitated by two people who desperately don't want it to happen. That's dramatic. That is interesting. <laughs> That's good writing. Yeah. You know? So, okay, here's here's what I'm going to do. Here's, here's what I'm doing and I'm going to ask you go with me because I think it'll make us happier people. I'm going to assume that the Klingon arc has to be resolved in some meaningful way by the end of this season, given that they didn't know if they were getting a second season and they're apparently currently writing the second season. So maybe this is just Discovery's first season hiccups. They will learn. Maybe they'll even listen to this podcast and learn what we do and do not want and what does and does not annoy us. And when, when Riker grows his beard for season two, they'll just move past it because the... The frustrating thing, it's almost worse in a way than the Abrams movies, not in terms of quality, but in terms of experience, because it was clear from the first one, this at best was going to be entertaining popcorn fare if you turned off the correct parts of your brain. So you learn not to expect things. We still got angry, but, you know, that's because they seem to be actively insulting us. This, the Discovery stuff is good. The, the, I, I, have, I am where I have been for a month now. The bones of good Star Trek are there. A very good Star Trek are there. They are it's lightly, but actually engaging several stories that, and even with a slightly fresh take, like it doesn't feel merely like TNG, DS9, Voyager, TOS retread, even for the Star Trek stuff they're doing. So all they have to do, all we have to do together is endure 10 more episodes of 20 minutes a piece of superfluous Klingon crap and enjoy the discovery stuff and then hope that for season two that they'll just focus on the ship. <laughs> I, so I, I understand and I agree with almost everything. Uh, I will say that the ethical dilemmas to me do seem like retreads. Uh, you know, this, and that that's why by comparison it's so meager that the, the level of port of shrift they're given 
short. <laughs> um, because, you know, we've already seen episodes, like you say, with the Crystalline Entity, with the Exocomps, with, you know, the Horta, you know, all manner of creatures that have been, they, they've plumbed this question and they've done it well, you know. And so I'm not really seeing much new in the, the Tardigrade aspect, which seems to be done now anyway. Uh, and so at the end of the day, God, what did really we get? It really makes Landry's death even dumber, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but what did we really get at the end of the day with this Tardigrade story? If you if you combined all the scenes of people, you know, sort of questioning or, you know, fretting about it, it it's been like a 20-minute story. It's like the B story of one episode, Tops, which I think is lame, you know. Uh, but I agree on everything else. You know, the characters are interesting. The uh, sort of redemption angle is interesting. The tensions are interesting. The, the Lorca character became much more interesting in this episode than he had been uh, in the prior episode, uh, in my opinion, because, you know, they portrayed the real sort of tensions in Starfleet, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the Klingons are sort of the the Kazon of this this series. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what the likelihood is. I, I, I have my doubts. Because Klingons seem like the thing that like dipshit uh, you know executives would say you must focus on this you know uh, but Brian Fuller was a big creative force early in the show anyway um, and so maybe he had an overall plan and I want yeah I want Brian Fuller's spores to expand throughout this universe and just <laughs> yeah. Uh. God. Um, so anyway, uh, I, just, I live in terror of the day they run out of this out of, when they run out of runway on whatever he did. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm at a three on this. Yeah, yeah, me too. Easy total. Three. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's solid. Yeah, the the show it's hasn't got problems. Been, the show has never been bad yet. I am. I think the closest we're going to get based on the previews to a bad episode. I don't know. Did you watch the preview? I did. Uh, we're going back to Sarek. Yeah. So I feel that could be the time we get the most annoyed at the pointlessness of this show's temporal uh, location. Um, but uh, we'll see. Okay, but yeah. I, yeah, like, and maybe I'm... It, it's half of a very good episode. Yeah, which has and been I, the story for several weeks now. Yeah, I can't give it more than a three because it's only half of a very good episode. Uh, it, it is sort of willfully ignoring the things that really work well and, you know, foisting a bunch of unenjoyable crapola on us. So, you know, it, it's hard to go above a three when it do, it just doesn't click all the way through on all cylinders, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do like it better than the previous episode, uh, which I also gave a three. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, let me think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll give it to you. There's better character work here. Yeah, there there was a more interesting interpersonal conflict uh, between Saru and Burnham, and also the development of Lorca. I, I think it was really the Lorca thing that was the problem with the prior episode. You know, it's like he was this you know warmonger jerk off. Um, 
which just doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. how did he how did he get command in the previously pacifist? You know, Starfleet was he always just? By the way, I read a theory today uh, on the internet that uh, Discovery is a Section Thirty. Oh, I, I read that same article. If it turns <laughs> out to be, I will actually I will send a bag of flaming dog shit to Alex Kurtzman's house. Like I'm like, <laughs> don't don't even. Do well, that. I mean, at least it would sort of explain, you know, the sort of continuity problem. But um, yes, but I, her, I agree it would be silly. It would be a host of other problems. Like, why are all these non-Section 31 people on it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it hasn't turned me off yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried about next week. The Sarek stuff, I think, is particularly for us. It's it's just it's you're it's like saying it, it's it's like Mickey Mantle pointing to the lights at the stadium. It's like the chances of even an excellent baseball player hitting the the lights with the ball are extremely tiny. Like why give yourself an impossible task? Just uh, uh, okay. So it's a six out of ten. We continue to enjoy it and remain. Just strung along enough to to, to be back each week, uh, so yeah, I'm 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 still considering it as Star Trek. Like I, I'm sure you agree with me on this, and I don't know how many people out there agree, but I do not consider the Abrams movies as Star Trek. Yeah, you know, like when I think about Star Trek, I have no thoughts <laughs> that involve those movies. You know, like never in my sort of pondering my understanding of Starfleet, the Federation, the future, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, any character, never does any of the quote unquote information presented in those movies ever impact any thought that I have. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all, all of my thoughts they are, are like less, they're less than nothing. Yeah, they're, my my only thoughts are like angry more in the way that I get a, the way I was angry about Batman versus Superman. It's just you know terrible, terrible decisions and uh, how the impact. So things. so this like I'm still open to this influencing my perception. Yeah, and and my my general conclusions and and all that stuff about Star Trek. Okay, which. That's that's a big thing for me to say, you know. Enterprise it was it was iffy, but at the end of the day there was enough there and they did the, you know, individual stories, they they built their bona fides, they they addressed enough of the questions where I was I I was willing to acknowledge its existence in canon and take some of the things it was saying as meaningful reflections on what Star Trek means, okay? And that, I mean, if you're able to do that in your series, you know, you have done something. I I, I think it's fair to say that you and I are pretty uh, hardcore fans. Oh, yeah. You know, who really care about it. And if you're, if you're able to accomplish that, to get people like us to extend that level of care to the thing that you've done, then you've you've been really successful, right? Um, I don't know if it's going to shake out that way, but I have not closed my mind to it yet. In the way that I closed my mind, I don't know, twenty minutes in to Abrams one, <laughs> maybe less. 
like the teaser was okay, but once they got back on Earth, you know, with the robot cop and the Nokia phone and the Beastie Boys, I was just like, fuck this bullshit. You know, this is not what I care about, you know, and nothing they can say or do <laughs> will hurt me, you know, which, of course, we then watch the other oh, movies. They, and, they, and they proved us wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here I'm still there, like I'm still in it. Right. I'm still I care about the characters. I I'm interested in what they have to say about the world. I am extremely dubious of the fungus drive. I am also extremely dubious about what they're doing with the Klingons. You know, yeah, I, I agree on the Klingons. I have like I, I just know that there's like it's 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 no explanation was going to satisfy me. So I've just let it I've let that issue go. Like uh, it, it's one of those more we've talked about this for Star Trek technology. It's less about the techno like it's fun with like the Heisenberg compensator is fun because Heisenberg was a person who's work in physics would impact the work of a transporter so it's kind of fun when the writers understand that stuff but by and large what 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 i really want to see is if you have the ability to travel instantaneously what does that do to the world yeah that's that so as long as they get to that place if they literally said a tiny hamster carries you on its back across the universe i'd be like oh okay whatever like i it's just i'm i am choosing as part of healthy living to invest less energy in that because I just think it turns into this just reflective loop. Uh, it's it's fine. It's it, are there better explanations? Are there ones that could be better informed by real physics? Absolutely. It's just it, it just doesn't it doesn't get above it, it doesn't achieve enough inertia to <laughs> or enough velocity to escape the gravity well of me not caring about it. Um, I'm more interested to see what they do with it, assuming it continues to work or finding an interest. Like so. If they find a way to delete it from the continuity, or at least explain why it doesn't iterate in other Star Trek, then you kind of have to ask yourself, why did you write a story that's apparently hermetically sealed from your story? Like, it just ma it makes even, like, one of two things has to happen. This, or I guess one of three things. One, they hit this golf shot, a hole-in-one on a par six of... It will fit and make sense and justify its own existence in continuity. It will not fit in continuity or it will just be deleted from continuity. So it's one of those like if it's the lat, if it's that last one, why are any of us here? If, yeah. if the end solution is none of this will ultimately impact any of the Star Trek you watched already. Why did you bother? I just I can't. That's that's what nags me. It's like you not only have to find a way for it to not breach continuity, you have to find a story reason to make this whole enterprise <laughs> pun absolutely intended um, worthwhile. Like it, it, it's it, it, it's like the problem of uh, these are the voyages. You went back in time to insert people into a story, and you then inserted stuff into Pegasus that didn't impact Pegasus or did impact Pegasus, but off screen, none of it makes sense because Pegasus was otherwise a fully functional episode. I just, it's, it's the thing that, it's the thing that just keeps gnawing at me. It's like, even if you succeed in not having it interfere with the other story, having to purposefully work to set your franchise in a, like, you know, thermodynamically isolated chamber from the rest of your other stories seems weird. 
Yeah. Like part of what we like about Star Trek is the expansive nature of the stories and that there are many places and many people doing many things sometimes at the same time. And that creates a textured, rich tapestry of a universe. So telling me that there's this like black hole of narrative that not even light can escape from just, just grabs me the wrong way. I just like maybe James Joyce could figure it out, but like, it's just one of those, like I, and, and, and I'll say it now, if they do it, if they, if they manage to not break continuity in a way that makes all this feel like a story that needed to be told in this way, I will, I will eat crow. I will, I will eat my hat. I will buy a hat for the purposes of eating it. But I'm not looking at hats on Amazon at the moment. I'm just, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think you need to be worried. Um, okay, well, a six, uh, a solidly entertaining, but perhaps deep, problematic. deeply problematic, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, installment, which that, that's been par for the course so far. Uh, nothing is broken out yet to really dazzle me, but it's also not, you know, sunk to depths that have made me just turn off my, they, they, they haven't coded of honor themselves yet. So, you know, thank heaven for small favors. All right. Well, uh, good night. Good luck. See you next week. Uh, live long and prosper. Um, you know, that we'll just we'll keep going on this crazy ride i guess yeah even if these podcasts i guess eventually devolve into just you know 30 second blurbs of oh god it sucked the end that i guess that's what it'll be but there's so much there it's it's not even like we're like the discuss the stuff on the ship was better but still not great the stuff on the ship feels like it has potential you know that's like yeah so Okay, so 6 out of 10. We'll be back for more Discovery next week and probably more Voyager kind of peppered throughout that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so the website is treknobabble.net. Please comment if you disagree with us, if you think we have it backwards, if you think the Klingons are just the Olivier of Star Trek. I would love to hear your opinion, and I mean that, not just to have an argument, but if there's something there you think I'm missing, love to talk or if about you, it. Or if you can just settle the question of whether that was, was Laurel in this That'd be also helpful. Uh, we're on Twitter at Treknobabblers, and uh, we are now on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Um, all the links are on the website at treknobabble.net. Please leave reviews if you like or dislike whatever you're listening to, because that's how we get uh, new listeners. Uh, and other than that, uh, see you next time. Yep.